in his first letter to the churches in and around Ephesus in the first century, the Apostle John, referring to Jesus, wrote these words. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16 There aren't many people <clears throat> who could write those words with a better understanding of what they actually meant than John. He was the disciple closest to Jesus and arguably after watching Jesus die a terrific death on a Roman cross firsthand and then seeing him alive again three days later, John's life, like the other disciples, would never be the same again. Despite beatings and imprisonment, the threat of death, John continued to preach the gospel of Christ to great effect. In fact, the 2nd century historian Tertullian, among other ancient writers, records the story of John being boiled in oil at the Latin Gate in Rome. But he survived that torture only to be sentenced to slave labor in the mines of Patmos, where in exile on that island, as we know, he wrote the final book of the Bible, the Revelation. John's entire life, from his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on, was the epitome of laying your life down for Jesus and for the brothers. The brothers, of course, being a reference to the church. Now, why would John do that? Well, because he loved Jesus, and he loved the church, and that's what real love looks like. You see, real love is so much more than just a feeling or an emotion and of course in Christian circles we often refer to love as a commitment but actually real love is far more than just making a commitment to someone else real love according to the scriptures is entering into a covenant with someone else when Jesus was sharing that final meal with his disciples just before laying down his own life for them and for us of course the ultimate act of love he didn't take the cup in his hand and say this cup that is poured out for you is the new commitment in my blood. No, Luke says he took the cup in his hand and he said this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Luke 22, 20 and you'll find that everywhere in scripture where real love, the love that the Father has for us and the love that we are to have for him and for one another, everywhere that is discussed in scripture it is always in the context of a covenant not simply a commitment because there's in fact a profound difference between the two in fact just just try to find the word commitment in the Bible you'll be hard-pressed to find it but then search for the word covenant and you'll find that it permeates the scriptures when it came to saving humanity and every species of animal from total destruction because he loved them God made a covenant with Noah and his family in Genesis 6:18. When it came to promising Abraham that his offspring would have their land to settle in and live in because he loved them, God made a covenant with them in Genesis 15, 18. When it came time for God to rescue his people from captivity and lifelong slavery because he loved them, he made a covenant with them in Exodus 19, 5. 1 Samuel 18, 3 says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Even when God's people sinned against him, 2 Kings 13, 23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant. 
When the people of Israel finally recognized David as their king, they pledged their love and allegiance to him in 1 Chronicles 11, 1 through 3, by making a covenant with him. In repentance for idol worship in 2 Chronicles 15, 12, the people of God entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. And then if you skip down to verse 15, it says, All Judah rejoiced over the oath, that would be the covenant, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with all their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Malachi 2.14 describes the marriage relationship as a covenant. All of the promises that God has made to us in Scripture are given in the context of one covenant or another. Ephesians 2.12 And we already read in Luke 22.20 that Jesus' sacrifice for us was the inauguration of a new covenant. Why? Because God loves us. So he made a new covenant with us, not because we've earned it and not because we deserve it. No, he instituted a new covenant with us simply because he loves us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, God's love for us and the love that we are to have for one another is always expressed in scripture in the context of a covenant. Now, why does that matter? It matters because we as God's people have not simply made a commitment to Christ or a commitment to each other despite the fact that we most often use that language that is actually incorrect. No, as God's people we've actually entered into a covenant with Christ and a covenant with each other and the difference couldn't be more profound which is why uh, I believe one of the major reasons why professing believers in the modern church treat their relationship with Christ and their relationship with the church so casually today because in our popular thinking and teaching we've reduced our sacred covenantal relationships with Christ and his church down to nothing more than a casual commitment that we engage and disengage with whenever it's suits our immediate needs or desires but that's not how a covenant works when you enter into a covenant you don't have the luxury of backing out of it whenever you want to or whenever it makes you uncomfortable or whenever it causes you pain or whenever staying in it means you're going to suffer or even when the other party doesn't honor that covenant which we'll see today which is why when faced with persecution and torture and emotional and physical pain and suffering and unfair treatment by others, those early apostles never wavered even to their own deaths because they understood that they had entered a covenant by way of an oath that they could not break. No matter how much pain or suffering or discomfort or unfairness they had to experience in the process. Why? Because that's what real love looks like. You see, real love is covenantal love. It's love that never quits, no matter how hard it gets. It's love that never walks away, even when the other person does. It's love that fights for someone else, even though they've given up. It's love that serves, even when you're spent. It's love that gives, even when you're in need. It's love that honors, even when you're not. It's love that believes for the best, even when everything is at its worst. Covenantal love is real love, the kind of love that bears all 
things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Covenantal love is a love that never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. You understand if you're a Christian, this is the very love that you've not only been called to, but in fact, it is the love that you have entered into first with Christ and then with each other, which we'll see today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the letter to the Hebrews. And listen, this is one of those truths in Scripture that once it becomes embedded, not only in your mind, but in your heart, once it takes root, not only in your thinking, but in your living, it will change everything about the way that you live forever. This is why the disciples look like completely different people before and after the new covenant they entered into with Jesus, right? Read about their lives before Jesus' death and resurrection. Then read about their lives after. They were totally different people. Why? Before the cross... They believed in Jesus. They followed Jesus. They knew all about Jesus. But the moment the idea of representing him to the world made them uncomfortable, put them in danger, threatened their way of life, what did they do? They ran away and hid the fact that they were ever his followers to begin with. After his death and resurrection, after they entered into a covenant relationship with him, nothing could stop them from telling people about Jesus. Nothing could keep them from spreading the gospel. Nothing could stamp out the fire inside of them that drove them to be together constantly, to give away all that they had, even their own lives, for the sake of Christ and his church. Because, you see, for the first time in their lives, they understood what real love was. It was a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ and his people which permeated every single aspect of their lives. I, I just wonder today how many Christians believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, can tell you all about Jesus, but aren't living the kind of devoted lives to Jesus and his church that they were created to live because they don't understand the covenant that they've actually entered into and what that means for the rest of their lives. It's what the author of Hebrews is teaching us today as we pick this letter back up where we left off last week. So let's read it together. Chapter 8. We'll begin by reading the first seven verses. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's referencing the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood that Jesus was clearly not a part of. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So in the last chapter, the author went to great lengths 
to explain the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, better than all those who came before him, including Moses and Aaron and the Levites, even, uh, even the great Melchizedek, which we went over in depth last Sunday. And so now, he's finishing his thought on that discussion in chapter 7 by saying, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So as the great high priest, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The word majesty was an ancient Semitic expression that referred to God himself. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God himself and all throughout scripture the right hand is a symbol of power and blessing. So Jesus is seated in a place of power and blessing at the right hand of the Father in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The, the true tent being a reference to heaven or the presence of God. So our great high priest is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ministering with power and blessing, something that no other high priest could ever claim, not even, uh, not even close, which, points, uh, which he points out as he continues. He says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven mediating a covenant with power and blessing, but his ministry is also unlike the ministry of any other high priest because his covenant is enacted on better promises. Verse 3 says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, for Jesus, also to have something to offer. That's where the better promise comes in. Because what Jesus offers, the covenant that he offers us, is a better promise than any of the gifts and sacrifices that all of the other previous priests offered combined. So what is this better promise? Or what is the gift and sacrifice that Jesus offers us that is better? Well, it's himself. You understand, Jesus is the new covenant. In Isaiah 42.1, the Lord declares a word about Jesus through the prophet. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the ministry of Jesus in great detail. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, I will give you, referring to Jesus, I will give you, Jesus, as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You, you understand, this description of Jesus is also the very definition of real love. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So Jesus, who is love defined, is also the new covenant. That's why he said this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That is a statement not only about the new covenant, but it is also a statement about the deeply profound love that he has for us. And so because of his love for us, Jesus fulfills the old covenant and embodies the new covenant even as he invites us to share in it with him. This is real love. 
You see, and all throughout the New Testament, his people are referred to as being in Christ, which is another way of saying in the new covenant or residing in the very love of Christ, which means if you are truly a Christian, then you are in a covenant relationship with Christ, the embodiment of real love. So, so what exactly does that mean? What, what is a covenant exactly? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is most often translated as covenant, uh, 280 times in fact, is the word berith. It refers to a confederacy or the binding of two parties together in a confederacy, not to be confused with a commitment or even a contract. Okay. First of all, uh, commitments are a dime a dozen. We commit to meet someone for a meal, but if something more pressing comes up, we cancel, right? We, we commit to diets and exercise routines and gym memberships, and then we cancel when it's no longer convenient or as much of a priority in our daily routine as it once was. Star athletes commit and decommit to colleges during recruiting season every year, right? We, we commit to all sorts of things and cancel those commitments whenever we prefer something else more. Even when we enter into a contract, there's a legal understanding that if one of the parties doesn't hold up their end of that contract, then the other party is released from that contract. Listen, not so with a covenant. Okay, when you enter into a covenant, both parties agree to honor their oath to that covenant regardless of whether the other party keeps their oath to that same covenant or not. So in a covenant, a breach by one party by, of the covenant does not void the other party's responsibility to continue to honor that covenant. Why? Because that's what real love looks like. Which is why as Christians, we don't have to get saved or be born again all over again every time we commit a sin. Because even though at times we violate the covenant that we have in Christ, Jesus continues to honor his oath concerning that covenant to us. You see, because that's what real love looks like. And interestingly, when you look at the ancient Greek word that is translated as covenant at least 33 times in the New Testament, the word diatheke, it means testament, as in last will and testament, which of course is the vow of one party to give something to another party regardless of what the receiving party does or does not do with that gift. Because the giving party is long gone, of course, once that will is put into play, but the person who writes that will promises gifts to those they love even if they didn't earn it. Why would they do that? Because that's what real love looks like. So you understand a covenant, according to Scripture, is an oath that you enter into and are bound to regardless of whether or not the other party upholds their end of that same agreement. And by the way, there is no expiration date unlike a contract or a commitment that can expire. That's why when entering into the covenant of marriage, we make our vows, the oath that we make toward one another, because it's a covenant, not merely a contract or a commitment. So we pledge ourselves to each other in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. In other words, we are bound to that covenant whether the other person is able to honor their part of the vow or not. Why? Because that's what real love looks like. And by the way, how long do we vow for that marriage covenant to last? 
until death parts us. You see, because the covenant is not dependent upon the performance of the other person and it never expires because that's what real love looks like, which is where this whole subject gets real for us real fast. Because when you became a Christian, whether you understood it at the time or not, you entered not into a legal contract and not into a simple commitment that you can back out of or decommit from whenever it suits you. No, when you vowed your life to Christ, you entered into a binding covenant with Christ because that's what real love looks like. And it's not based on what you've done for Him or ever can do for Him. No, it's simply based on who he is and on who he created you to be because that's what real love looks like the apostle paul said we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them ephesians 2:10 you see you were created to be in a covenant relationship with christ jesus and that covenant never expires. It doesn't become invalid or even temporarily suspended whenever your commitment to it wavers. Because although commitments are flimsy, of course they come and go, covenants are forever. This was the mindset the author was confronting with these first century Hebrew Christians and it desperately needs to be confronted in the modern church today. Okay, These early believers... They didn't view their relationship with Christ as a covenant on par with the one their people had been living under for centuries. Keep in mind at this point, Christianity was still new, right? Judaism was ancient, something they trusted and followed for generations. But now they're being told that the old covenant was out, that it had now been fulfilled in Jesus. And so all that was left for them to follow was this new superior covenant in him. And they were having a hard time fully accepting that. They were, in fact, beginning to believe that maybe they could follow Jesus and also follow their trusty old religion at the same time. It was a win-win where everybody's happy, except for the fact that that wasn't the covenant they'd entered into with Christ. It was actually... Uh, actually, it was an early form of pluralism. Religious pluralism is the belief that there is more than one way to heaven. More than one pathway to God. So when someone tells you that all religions or even multiple religions are equally valid in their own way and they all lead to God, that is called pluralism, which according to the Bible, just so you know, is false teaching. It's heresy. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 clearly teaches us that there's only one God. And then John 14, 6, Jesus makes it clear that there's only one pathway to that one God, which is through Jesus Christ himself, which is a teaching that is then reaffirmed over and over again throughout the New Testament by the apostles, including in Acts 4, 12. So just in case there's any question in your mind, let me be crystal clear with you today. There is only one God, and there's only one way to reach that one God, which is through a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other way. I know that sounds intolerant, and in fact, in one sense, it is intolerant. But it's also what real love looks like. 
And yet some of these early Hebrew Christians weren't convinced. They were trying to bring their old covenant religion into their new covenant relationship with Christ. Bible scholar George Guthrie writes, Pluralism was as pervasive in the first century as it is in the present one. If those win the day who wish for a revision of Christianity as a non-dogmatic religion able to fit in with the plethora of religious systems offered modern humankind, then Christianity, that of the stripe proclaimed by Hebrews, in other words, biblical Christianity, will surely be lost. Okay, the point the author was trying to get across to these Hebrew Christians and the point the church needs to hear today is the fact that there's no room in our covenant relationship with Christ for the worship of anything else but Jesus Christ. We haven't simply made a commitment or entered into a contract that other commitments and contracts can be added to as we please. No, if you are a Christian, then you have entered into an exclusive covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are not in an exclusive covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, then I'm sorry to say you are not a Christian. You... You understand, this is basic biblical teaching. This is foundational teaching to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet I am continually shocked when I share it with professing Christians. I'm shocked at how many people in the modern church today either haven't heard that or don't believe it. And that's on the church, by the way. We're failing at teaching the most rudimentary basics of the gospel. If there are people professing to be followers of Christ in our churches who also believe there are multiple pathways to reach God. And I understand that allowing people to believe their own versions of the gospel may seem compassionate and inclusive and loving. But the truth is when we do nothing to bring correction to those in our churches who believe in any gospel other than the one that Jesus and his apostles taught that is the very opposite of real love right if the building is on fire and all the exits are engulfed in flames except for one and you run into every room in the building to make sure everyone knows there's only one way to escape the fire and someone in that building says to you well I'm sorry but I disagree I think there are multiple ways to get out of this building without getting burned. Now you tell me, how loving would it be for you to smile and nod and either agree with them or say nothing at all to avoid offending them? Right? That is the very definition of hate, not love. The most loving thing you could do for that person in that moment is to insist on the truth. Why? To save their lives, no matter how arrogant or offensive you may seem to them. In that moment, it doesn't matter. Why? Because that's what real love looks like. And yet there are Christians in the church today who are perfectly content to allow for others in the church to believe a message other than the one that Jesus died for. And listen, if we can't reach the people in our own churches with the truth of the gospel, what hope do we have of reaching those who are not in our churches with the truth of the gospel? One of my favorite scholars, John Stott, wrote, 
One of the tragedies of the contemporary church is that just when the world seems to be ready to listen, the church often seems to have little or nothing to say. For the church itself is confused. It shares in the current bewilderment instead of addressing it. The church is insecure. It is uncertain of its identity, mission, and message. It stammers and stutters when it should be proclaiming the gospel with boldness. Indeed, the major reason for its diminishing influence in the West is its diminishing faith. Okay, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, if you're not absolutely convinced that a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world, if you're not overcome by the conviction that your covenant relationship to Christ is superior to any and every other relationship you have or ever could have in this life, then you will not share that truth with others, not if you're unconvinced yourself. And so... Listen, I'm compelled today to tell you, just in case you haven't heard it lately or are not sure what to believe, listen, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. There is no other way. And I will continue to proclaim that truth until the day I die, even if it offends every single person around me, because that's what real love looks like. Listen, there are times when honoring that covenant relationship with Christ in your own life will be hard. Absolutely, there are times when it will cost you friendships and favor with other people. There are times when it will hurt to have to honor the covenant because there's a very real cost involved to following Jesus Christ, which is why the author of this letter was so confrontational with the church. Because sometimes that's what real love looks like. It's also one of the reasons we need each other, by the way. Because following Jesus isn't always easy. And of course, God knew that it would be difficult for us at times, which is why He brings us all, all of us, into the same covenant as one family. Let's finish the chapter for today and see how He does that. Verse 8 to the end. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in these final verses of the chapter, the author quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's actually, uh, just so you know, the oldest, um, I mean the longest Old Testament quote that there is in the New Testament. And it's very telling 
that the author chooses to use this particular quote because it not only prophesies the coming of the new covenant in Christ, but it was a prophecy given by Jeremiah in the 18th year of King Josiah, 621 BC, when Hilkiah the priest discovered the book of the law, most likely the book of Deuteronomy, which was promptly followed by a solemn assembly by the entire nation where the book of the law was read publicly, leading all of the people to repent and rededicate themselves to God under the old covenant. Now you would think that that would be cause for celebration on Jeremiah's part and on God's part. But instead he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Not, not like the one you're crying about now and rededicating yourselves to, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. <laughs> I mean, what a thing to say. So these people are repenting, rededicating their lives to God under this old covenant, and God says, no, this isn't going to work. Not good enough. Because it's not going to last, just like it didn't with the generations before. We need a new covenant. And I think it's very telling that the author of Hebrews chooses this particular moment in their history to make his point. Because even when under the old covenant they repented and dedicated themselves to God and obeyed his commands, even then the old covenant was insufficient. In other words, the author's saying what you're trying to go back to will never be enough. Even at its best, in the days of Josiah, it still wasn't enough. We needed a new covenant. And God knew it, so he promised to put my laws into their minds and to write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer would God's people have to rely on external religious practices to become righteous. No longer would we be at the mercy of the law to save us. No longer would we have to try and earn our way into a covenant relationship with him. For he was going to do something new. Something he had never done before. He was building his church by writing this new covenant on our hearts and on our minds, creating a family of believers who would be washed clean of their sins and become united as one body together by the Spirit of Christ within us. So that now, as a Christian, you not enter into that covenant with Christ, but you enter into that covenant with every other believer because it is no longer a matter of what we do it is simply a matter of who we are you see we together are the body of Christ grafted in as members of this new covenant the apostle Paul said now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it first Corinthians 12 27 and the body does not consist of one member but of many if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 16. You understand, as a member of the body of Christ, you are part, a part of the covenant with Christ, along with your fellow believers, whether you like it or not, 
or whether you believe it or not. Right? Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That doesn't make it any less a part of the body. So you're not only in a covenant relationship with Jesus, but if you're a Christian, you're in a covenant relationship with each other. By default, again, as you enter into that covenant relationship with Christ, you're, you're grafted into the family of God, His body, which automatically includes you into a covenant relationship with the rest of His body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. We're all in this together. And yet some of these Hebrew Christians were separating themselves from the rest of the church. They'd gotten the idea that their faith in Christ could be a private matter which they kept to themselves as they went about their business of pursuing things that were more culturally acceptable at the time. And so the author says something that, listen, he says something that we are so used to hearing in the modern Christian church today that we don't even give it a second thought. But to these first century Hebrews, this was about as harsh, about as in your face, about as shock your senses of a statement that could possibly be made to a group of first century Jews. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <laughs> in other words, not only is this new covenant superior to the old, but it is so superior that the first covenant, the one that you and your family and your ancestors have been following for centuries, the one that has formed the very basis for your way of living and worshiping and interacting socially and politically and educationally, the one that your very identity is anchored to at the very deepest levels. Yeah, that covenant, that one is becoming obsolete. In fact, it's about to vanish. We don't have any equivalent of this today that we can relate to. Honestly, we, we have no idea how incredibly incendiary, how provocative, how explosive this statement was to a bunch of first century Jews. Listen, as worked up as we get today about the idea of a political party gaining power in this country and changing our way of life, right? And I'm not saying we should or shouldn't be. I'm simply saying as worked up as that makes us, it doesn't even begin to hold a candle to what the author was saying was going to happen to these Hebrew Christians. He says, your history your patterns of living, your idea of family, your very identity, all of it changes when you enter into this new covenant. And it is such a powerfully superior covenant that everything you've ever known is about to vanish because of it. Now, why would the author, who we've clearly seen in previous chapters, loves these people, why would the author say something so harsh, so hurtful, so confrontational, so intolerant, so exclusive, so personally jarring to these Hebrew Christians who were struggling with their faith? Why would he say that? Because that's what real love looks like. 
Because that's what you do when you're in a covenant relationship with other people. You love them enough to tell them the truth. You love them enough to be confrontational. You love them enough to pursue them when they stray. You love them enough to help them when they're hurting. You love them enough to provide for their needs. You love them enough to forgive them when they fail. You love them enough to accept them when they're broken. You love them enough to heal them when they're hurting. You love them enough to protect them when they're vulnerable. You love them enough to lay down your life for them because that's what real love looks like. It's a part of being in a covenant relationship with other people. You, you don't walk away when it gets hard or uncomfortable or hurtful or disagreeable. No, you stay and you grow and you continue to build his church. This is what uh, listen, this is what Christians who disengage from the local church are missing. You see, they don't understand the concept of being in a covenant relationship. They think the church is all about them. And so when it no longer suits them, they leave. With no thought whatsoever to the fact that not only do they need the church, whether they realize it or not, but the church needs them. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You see, God didn't give each one of us gifts to keep them to ourselves. He gave us those gifts to share them with the church who needs them. The church needs the gifts that you have been given, which means when you leave the church, it's not just about you. It's about the rest of the body who you are in a covenant relationship with being deprived of the gifts that God gave you for the express purpose of serving the church. It's not, it's not only why we don't walk away from the church, it's also why we don't simply attend its gatherings forever and never actively serve the body because the church needs the gifts that you've been given. So you come and you give even when you don't feel like it. You come and you, you give even when it's hard. You come and you give even when you'd rather be doing something else. You come and you give even when someone there makes you feel bad. You come and you give. Why would you do that? Because that's what real love looks like. I'm certain Jesus didn't feel like giving all that he gave. In fact, he made that pretty clear in his prayer just before his crucifixion. But he gave it all anyway. I don't think the apostles looked forward to being persecuted or ridiculed or tortured or killed, but they willingly accepted all of that anyway. I don't think the author of this letter felt like confronting his church with such hard words. I certainly don't. You can hear the struggle in his voice at times, and yet he confronted them anyway. And listen, I don't think this church would be here today changing people's lives right here in our church as it does and in this community and all over the world for the past six years if it wasn't for men and women like you who come and give when you feel like it and even when you don't. Who come and give when it's easy and even when it's hard. 
who come and give out of your blessing and even out of your own need, who come and give when it's a joy and even when it's thankless, men and women who keep coming and keep giving because you understand that this is much more than a commitment. It is a covenant. And that's what real love looks like. Let's pray.